remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text. I'm going to shorten the reading to just verses 31 to 36 in John chapter 8. Listen to the gospel of God. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, or truly. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say, you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free truly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word because it is truth and it sets us free. Help us, even as we meditate on this passage, to become more like your Son, to become more faithful sons of God and true disciples of Jesus. We ask for your help in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Samson's life began with many hopes and expectations. He was to be Israel's deliverer. No one like Samson had ever been born. No one with such promise. Such a bright future, it seemed. From birth, Samson enjoyed special privileges. He became a Nazarite even while he was in his mother's womb. He was set apart by God as a holy warrior. That's what it meant to be a Nazarite. And as a Nazarite, He could never drink alcohol. He could never touch a corpse. He could never lay a razor, put a razor to his head, cut his hair. As Samson began to grow, he exhibited exhibited extraordinary physical capabilities. It appears that Samson could do just about anything. And when the Spirit of God came upon him, miracles happened. Judges 13.25 says, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Began to stir Samson. God came upon Samson as a young man and stirred him into action. And the Israelites expected great things. Samson had come of age and he was going to use his spiritual and physical strength to deliver his people. But sadly his life began to fall apart pretty quickly. It all began, of course, when he pursued a Philistine wife against his parents' wise objections. Now, we know that God had a purpose for this, as the text says, but we also know that it was unwise of Samson to pursue this. And After this, a series of bad choices led to his costly liaison with Delilah toward the end of his life. At one point, after Delilah had finally got the best of him, after trying a few times to no avail, Samson went out to defeat the Philistines as he had done 
many times before, but this time there was something different that he didn't recognize, that he had not experienced before. Listen to Judges 16.20. And Delilah said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson had become desensitized to his spiritual decline. His perception, his spiritual perception was gone. His great potential unfulfilled. The tragic account continues in Judges 16.21, and the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Life had caved in on Samson. He, he could have been free and mighty, but he ended up enslaved and weak. Israel's liberator had fallen into abject servitude. Samson's life is a dramatic, epic illustration of a pattern of life that we are all susceptible to. We've been set free in Jesus. We've been set apart by God, by His Spirit, in baptism, for the work of holy warfare. We've been commissioned. But the siren songs of sin are always luring us back into slavery. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. God has rescued you from slavery. He set you free for freedom. Don't go back. Samson let himself be burdened by the yoke of slavery. He was meant to be a deliverer, but instead he became a slave. In John 8, 31-36, we find out what lies behind spiritual slavery. And even better, we discover what it means to be free and what it takes to be free. So we, we see the problem, but we also see, we also find... The solution. Throughout John 8, Jesus has been locked in confrontation with the religious authorities. He's proclaimed to them that He is the light of the world. And the implication, of course, is that they don't have the light. They are in utter darkness. He's also warned these Jews that they are in danger of the fire of hell. Because they are from below. They think that they are spiritual. After all, they're covenant members. They're religious. They do everything they're supposed to do. But Jesus says, no, in your heart, at your core, you are from below. I'm from above. You're from from below. In other words, they have not been born again from above. They have not been born of God. Three times in the previous passage, as we saw last week, Jesus tells these Jewish listeners, Jewish leaders, that they will die in their sins. Unless, of course, they repent. They will die in bondage. The bondage that they are in even now. Because they do not believe 
in Jesus. They do not believe Jesus himself. Verse 30 says, as he spoke these things, many believed in him. But we're about to see that their faith in Jesus is not the true and lasting kind of faith. Their hearts are rocky ground. They're still enslaved to sin with no freedom yet. Look at verses 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, truly. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. A lot of people don't understand what freedom is, biblically speaking. Most people define it in the world, especially, as being able to do whatever you like to do. The sexual revolution says that freedom, true freedom, is being able to do what you want to do with whoever you want to do it with. But when you read the parable of the prodigal son, you realize that this is exactly how he defined freedom. The ability to do whatever you feel like doing whenever you feel like doing it. He thought that getting an early inheritance and and going off and indulging in instant gratification was freedom. That's the freedom he looked forward to. But he soon discovered that this so-called freedom is just another form of slavery. True freedom... True liberty is the ability to be and do what you were meant to be and do. Not the ability to be and do whatever you like, whatever your impulses tell you to do, but the ability to be and do what God designed you to be and do. That's true freedom. Do you long for that kind of freedom? I think we all do. We were made to long for it. And we can't rest until we've found it. If, if you're restless, you're still looking for it, at least to some extent. If you're restful, you found it, at least to some extent. There's only one path to this freedom. Jesus says in verses 31 and 32 that discipleship is the only track to this freedom that we all desperately want and need. If you want to experience a life of genuine freedom. The kind of freedom that doesn't go away because you are imprisoned or oppressed or persecuted. If you want biblical freedom, a freedom that makes you free indeed, then Jesus says you must, be, you must become a true disciple, which means doing what true disciples do. That's the only road to liberty. All the other roads lead to further enslavement. And Jesus tells us how to be free in three steps we could break it down into. The first step is by faith. Discipleship begins with faith in Jesus. This is a simple point, but a vital point. Jesus is speaking to those who say they believe in Him. Of course, we mustn't forget, though, that there, is a, there, there are different kinds and different levels of faith. 
particularly in John's Gospel. John's Gospel has already introduced us to various types of faith that fizzles out. Faith that has shallow roots. The type of faith that leads to freedom, freedom that Jesus is talking about, is the faith that abides in Christ all the way to the end. All the time and all the way. This is saving faith. The faith that saves. The only faith that saves. So the first step toward true discipleship and true freedom is trusting in Jesus. Entrusting yourself to Christ. Believing Him. Believing in Him. Putting your faith in Him every day for all your days. The second step is continuing in His Word. If you abide in My Word, Jesus says, you are truly My disciple. If you continue in My Word, you are My disciple truly. The second step here is the hinge. It's the linchpin of discipleship. The meaning of abide in My Word in verse 31 is stay in My Word, remain in My Word, continue in My Word, live in My Word. True disciples of Jesus always abide in His Word. It's where they live because it's where they get their life. It's where they live because it's where they get their life. If you abide in My Word, you are My disciple indeed. Think about that statement. On the basis of that statement, what kind of disciple are you? Are you a disciple indeed? Are you engaged in the process of becoming a true disciple? Jesus' statement here indicates that there are two kinds of disciple, just as there are at least two kinds of faith. The word indeed at the end of verse 31 means truly. Some tra- most translations render it truly. If you abide in my word, you are my disciple truly. That means that some disciples are not disciples truly. Outward they are. Outwardly they are. They are part of the church. And they may conform outwardly to certain standards, at least in public. But inwardly, in their inner being, in their heart, They have never been freed from their sins and they don't abide in the Word. They don't abide in Christ, the Word made flesh, the capital W Word. They don't abide in the Word of Scripture, the Word inscripturated. When they read the Word or hear the Word preached, it doesn't abide in them and they don't abide in it and so they don't experience the life and the freedom that it offers. That's... That's the grim reality that we see over and over and that Jesus reiterates in this Gospel. Those of you with the Bible, turn to James chapter 1. And I'll encourage you again, you should bring your Bibles to church so that you can follow the sermons and so that you can flip around to other passages on occasion. I know a lot of you have a handful of kids and that's not possible, but if... If it is possible, bring your Bible and get into the habit of opening it 
and following along in the sermons. Turn to James chapter 1 and we'll look at verse 21. James 1, 21. Therefore, James says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is what a true disciple does right here. He repents of wickedness. He receives with meekness the word of Christ that has been planted in him. He abides in the word and the word abides in him all the way to the end. And this word saves his soul, James says. He becomes a doer of the word, not just a hearer of it. While you're in James 1, look at the next verse. Verse verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hearers only deceive themselves. False disciples are always self-deceived. They've built tall, thick, insulated walls around themselves. They tell themselves that they're true disciples even while they fail to practice the basics of the Christian faith. They don't receive the implanted Word. They hear it, but they don't do it, and so it doesn't save them. Instead of laying aside their sin, the type of sins that we read about in our epistle lesson from Colossians 3, instead of laying aside their sin, they justify it. Instead of laying aside their anger and their filthy talk and their divisiveness and their hard hearts, instead of laying aside the overflow of wickedness spewing out of their hearts in the relationships, they create an alternate reality in which their wickedness is righteousness. In reality, it's just self-righteousness. False disciples are enslaved to their self-righteousness and their self-deception. And it all goes back to their failure to receive with meekness the Word that was planted in their hearts. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He knew the Old Testament better than just about anyone. He was an expert in Scripture. The Word was planted in Nicodemus. But Jesus tells him that if he wants to enter the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again from above, born of the Spirit, Jesus says. When the Holy Spirit Spirit plants the Word of Christ in your heart and you receive it with meekness and you abide in it, you continue to receive it with meekness, that Word transforms your life. It imparts spiritual life only comes from Jesus. It makes you a true disciple. It gives you power over sin. It frees you from slavery to sin. It makes you a slave of righteousness. And it saves your soul from hell. Abiding in the Word involves studying the Word, reading it, listening listening to it, getting to know it, memorizing it, and obeying it. 
So studying it and obeying it. The result of studying and obeying the Word, abiding in the Word, is freedom. When you abide in the Word by hearing it and doing it, studying it and obeying it, you put yourself in the path of ongoing and increasing freedom. This is a process. So, so the first step to true freedom, which is also the first step to true discipleship, is trusting in Jesus, putting your faith in Him. And the second step is continuing in, abiding in, staying in, remaining in, living in the Word of Jesus. The third step is knowing the truth, and it's really a consequence of the first and second as well. When you trust in Jesus and abide in His Word, verse 32 says that you will know the truth. By by becoming a disciple who makes his home in the Word, you open yourself to the truth. And when you submit to that truth, you, you expose yourself to it and then you submit to it. When you receive it and do it and abide in it and let it abide in you, then you open yourself to knowing more truth. And with, this, and with this additional truth, this additional knowledge of truth comes additional freedom. Obedience to God's Word always leads to increased knowledge of God's Word. Turn back a page or two to John chapter 7. We looked at this several weeks back. John 7, and look at verse 17. Verse 17 is kind of the key, at least one of the key verses in that passage. Jesus says in John 7, 17, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. In other words, if anyone wills to do God's will, he will know the truth. When you will to do God's will, the result is that you will grow in your understanding of the truth. Jesus is using similar logic in John 8, 31 and 32. If you believe in Jesus and abide in His Word, which includes doing it, obeying it, as a true disciple, you will know the truth. And that truth that you know will set you free. We can also say that the more you cling to Jesus and abide in His Word, the more you will know the truth. And the more you know the truth, the more you will experience the freedom of being a child of God. It's a blessed upward spiral that God's Spirit catches us up in. This inward and upward journey is what the Christian life is is meant to be. And the key to this process, to this process of becoming free, becoming a true disciple, according to our text, is the second step. Abiding in the Word. Holding fast to Jesus and what He says. That's where your life is. That's where the source of your life is. Jesus and everything that comes out of His mouth. Which is all of Scripture. I don't know what your schedule is like this week. Your calendar may be jam-packed with all kinds of tasks and appointments, duties, 
But I know this, there's nothing more important for you to do this coming week than to abide in Christ's Word. Knowing God's Word and then putting it into action, doing it, is your most important calling for the rest of your life. No matter what your vocation is, your vocation is very important. Your primary calling is to know God. Doesn't mean you have to become a Bible scholar or go to seminary or spend 40 hours a week studying the Greek and the Hebrew and reading theology. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that your primary calling, we could say vocation, is to know Christ and His Word, to abide in Christ and His Word. This is the most important thing you'll do for the rest of your life. This is how you grow. It's how you, you become more vitally connected to Jesus. And never forget, the truth that sets you free is not just some vague notion or idea, or philosophical concept or proposition. The truth that sets you free is Jesus Himself. He is the truth incarnate. The truth in the flesh. He's the way, the truth, and the life, you remember. The person of Jesus is the way to freedom. The person of Jesus is the truth that sets you free. Your ultimate goal and purpose in life is to abide in the person of Christ Jesus. Everything else is important but secondary. And the chief way to abide in Christ is to abide in those living words that He gives to us, that He gave to us. If you want more of Jesus, get more of His words inside of you. Don't just put them in your head. You also have to put them in your heart so that you believe them and receive them with meekness. And then do them. You shall know the truth. And the truth, when you truly know it, which means receiving it and doing it, will set you free. And this raises an important question. We're talking a lot about freedom, what it means to be free. Free from what? Free from what? What are we, what are we slaves to that we need to be freed from? Jesus answers that question in verse 34, but first, let's look at verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now, the Jews here, some commentators will criticize this response of the Jews because, after all, they've been in all kinds of bondage. Uh, principally, they were in bondage in Egypt, clearly. But they were also in bondage to other empires, nations, throughout the centuries. But I don't think that's understanding what they're saying. They are actually understanding what Jesus is getting at. They know he's talking about spiritual freedom. And what they're saying is, hey, we're spiritually free. We, we've never been in bondage. All those times where it looked like we were in bondage, no, because we are descendants of Abraham, we were always free. That's what they're saying here. But you, but you see, they're depending 
on being descendants of Abraham rather than faith in God. And at this point in history, faith in Jesus, God's Son, the Messiah, the King, whom He sent to them. Jesus said back in John 4 that salvation is from the Jews, but He didn't say that salvation is being a Jew. Salvation is from the Jews because Jesus, our salvation, is from the Jews in one sense. He is a descendant of Abraham. And He saves us. These believing Jews show us here that their faith is actually a false faith. They are not disciples indeed. They are trusting in their genealogy rather than in Jesus. If, if they were true descendants of Abraham, as Jesus is going to go on to say, they would recognize who Jesus is and they would put their faith in him. And this sort of thing is, is often what presents peop, prevents people from becoming true disciples of Jesus and finding true freedom in Him. They think they're okay the way they are. They find some way to form a narrative in which they are all right. They are okay. They believe that they're free when they are not. You don't have to be a Jew, a a physical descendant of Abraham, to fall into this trap. Yeah, they may need, need a few minor adjustments here and there, but no big changes are necessary. This kind of self-deception and self-righteousness is still alive today in various forms. But Jesus cuts through their self-sufficiency and their Jewish pride. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. This is one of Jesus' most profound statements. Here Jesus unveils the true nature of the human heart. He reaches beyond specific acts of sin and He goes all the way back to the root cause of our sins. Paul calls this root cause the flesh or the sinful nature which lingers even after we are saved, even after we are in Christ and become new creations. Theologians have called it original sin, the sinful tendency that we inherited from our first father, Adam, and that will not go away completely. It will not be absent fully until we are dead. Every human is a sinner who commits sin. But we're not sinners because we sin. It's not as though, okay, we recognize that we've sinned, therefore we're going to label ourselves sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because, at root, we are sinners. We sin because we have fallen, sin-oriented hearts. And this is true to some extent, though it's different, but it's still true even after we have been saved. We sin because we were conceived in sin. We sin because we are natural born sinners, you could say. This is mankind's most fundamental problem. 
and each one of us inherited it at the moment of conception. This is why Jesus had to die because of our sin problem that goes all the way to our core. So even after we are saved, we are, as Paul says, wretched sinners. And what he meant by that is that's, that's his experience. That's how it feels sometimes. We're wretched sinners who must be delivered from our bodies of death that keep dragging us into all kinds of sin. In Romans 7, the sin that Paul's keying in on is covetousness. In Romans 7, Paul describes that feeling of being in some sense, enslaved to the flesh. He said he's sold under sin. Even after he'd become a Christian. He knows he's been set free from sin's power. He knows that in a very important sense, he's no longer a slave to sin. It's objectively true. But his experience is one of not being able to fully escape the presence and the powerful influence of original sin. Listen to Paul's struggle. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to Paul's struggle in Romans seven fifteen to 24. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. See, he's talking about how deep our sin problem is. We don't even understand it. In ourselves. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin, that original sin that, indw- that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, some interpreters, because that's so strong, and because Paul, in other places, says that, you know, we're free from, we're not slaves to sin. Some interpreters have said, well, Paul must be talking about his experience prior to being in Christ. But the next verse doesn't allow that. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, and after he says that, he comes back around. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So even as a redeemed man, delivered by Christ, he has this war raging, and we all do. Life in the mortal body, even for believers in Christ, is one of permanent and painful tension. Incongruity. We experience new life in Christ while we live in a body of sin and death. We experience the power of the new age, the new creation, in the midst of the weakness 
of the old age. This is the already not yet tension that we live in every day this side of the new heavens and the new earth. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to confess and acknowledge the reality of our fleshly identity. We don't fully escape our sinful nature this side of death. Our ongoing weakness reveals our misery and weakness so that, like Paul, we continue, and this is the point, so that we continue until death to cry out for deliverance and to give thanks to God in Christ for our deliverance. That's what these Jews failed to do and that's why they remained in slavery with no sign of freedom, no experience of any kind of freedom at all. At the end of that passage I read from Romans 7, Paul locates his hope for deliverance, for freedom in Jesus. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul knows where to find freedom. He knows where to experience at least a foretaste of the freedom that we'll have in fullness one day. It's in Jesus alone. And Jesus says the same thing in John 8, verses 35 and 36. Look at those two verses. The last two verses of our text today. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The freedom that Jesus gives, that he offers, is the freedom of a household son in comparison to a household slave. The slave has no rights. He won't inherit anything. He, he's not a, a part of the household forever. But the son lives in the house and has access to everything and will inherit it all. He can go wherever he wants and stay as long as he likes. The good news in this verse is that the Son, the capital S, capital S Son, the true Son, the Son of God, has made you a free Son. Christ the Son is the one who enjoys freedom in the household at the highest level. And he died on the cross so that he could share that freedom with you. The freedom that you can enjoy in the Son is the freedom that the Son has enjoyed for all eternity. And he gives it freely. He shares it with you. The freest being in all the universe, the Son of God, pumps freedom into our lives so that we can be free Truly, just as He is. In Jesus, we have freedom to rise above our sin. Freedom to live a holy life. Freedom to put to death the sins that entangle us and that try to enslave us. Freedom to choose to do what is right and to avoid what is wrong. Freedom to repent when we do what is wrong. Freedom to not be limited and defined by our failures and weaknesses and illnesses and diagnoses. Freedom to be and do what God designed us to be and do, even in this life. And according to our text, this freedom that Jesus gives 
comes to us because we believe in him and abide in his word and know the truth and submit ourselves to that truth. The freedom that Jesus is talking about is a freedom that you can experience whether you are in a Roman prison like Paul or hanging on a Roman cross like Jesus. Jesus never lost his liberty. Biblical freedom is not something that depends on politics or external circumstances. You could live in the freest country, in the freest period of that country's history, and yet be in utter bondage. Or you could live in the smallest and darkest cell in the most oppressive prison in the world and experience total freedom. Biblical freedom is a freedom from sin and a freedom for God. From sin, for God. True freedom is becoming dead to sin and alive to God. True discipleship is freedom from self-interest and freedom for interest in God and other people. In the parable of the prodigal son, both sons actually became enslaved, didn't they? Both sons gave up their sonship and made themselves slaves to sin. Remember what the father told the older son. You know, you've had everything. You're my son. Why are you acting like you don't? Why are you acting like a slave? And we know that the prodigal son, the younger son, made himself a slave to sin in a different way. Only one of them regained his sonship, his status as son. It was the younger brother. And he escaped his slavery to sin and attained to freedom by acknowledging his sin and submitting to his father's will. That's the only way to escape from bondage to sin. He submitted, first of all, to his father in heaven's will, but also to his earthly father's will. Are you living... In freedom, are you living in slavery? Have you returned to your old ways after having been freed? Christ has set you free for freedom. Have you returned to the yoke of slavery? Or are you abiding in the Word and growing in your knowledge of the truth? If your life is characterized by bondage, then, you, then your overwhelming sense may be that God's power is gone. You, you've had visions of being free and mighty like Samson in his youth. But you found yourself weak and enslaved like Samson later in life. If so, you need to repent and you need to turn back to God. Never too late. That's what Samson did. He repented. In the last moments of his life, he returned to God in faith and God filled him once again with His power. Turn to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Abide in His Word. Become a person of the Word. Saturate your heart and mind with the Bible. Discipleship. Following Jesus. 
is the only path to the freedom that we all long for at core. Are you feeding on Scripture? Are you obeying it? Are you hearing it and doing it? Are you growing in the knowledge of the truth? Are you abiding in Christ and in His Word? Are you a disciple indeed? These are the questions of true freedom, true liberty. Let's pray. God, thank You for freeing us from sin in Jesus. Help us by Your grace and by Your Spirit to live in that freedom, to walk in that freedom, to live as free sons and not to return to slavery. Help us in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen.